When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 188, Welsh Culture Under Pressure. As the 1700s dawned, it had been 200 years since the first Tudor, Henry VII, took the throne, 300 years since Glyndwr had launched his rebellion, and 400 years since Llewellyn was murdered at the traitor's well. Wales had begun its spin into the English influence long before even going back to the reign of King Alfred when his dominion over the southern kingdoms in the ninth century meant that practically most of Wales remained under Anglo dominance from that period on. Cultural assimilation began as the Norman conquest pushed into southern Wales in the 12th century, slowly pushing ever northward until the fateful year of 1282, with the arrival of the English administration settlement and economic control, the language and culture of Wales was seen as backward and rustic, to put it mildly or even politely. As resistance to English rule generally made way to grudging or even eager acceptance, the lack of Welsh language education, training, and rewards were starting to show. In London and other areas, of high society, the assumption was that few would want to remain in a culture so backward compared to the rich, forward-thinking, and successful English, a language that had spent years being superseded, of course, by the Norman French, but of course that is another story for another podcast. Another sign of this desire to fit into the English mold was the end of patronymics in Welsh history, people were designated by their ancestors, as we've mentioned in the past. You were the son of or daughter of. In Welsh, that would translate to ap or ab or ferch, depending on your gender. In my case, that would have been and meant, and I've previously mentioned this before, if I was to look at my own ancestry as far back as it would go on my father's side, it would be Jonathan, Ab Vernon, Ab Stanley, Ab Owen, Ab Owen, Ab William. William Williams being the farthest back known ancestor on my father's side. These changes, of course, saw the ad advent of more people going by last names. Thus, Ab John became Jones, Ab Reese became Reese or Price. Same thing with Richard, which would become Pritchard in some cases. Also, Evans, Williams, and Hughes all grew out of these changes, as well as many, many more. To be clear, this did not happen all at once, and most of the Welsh gentry had long lost their patronymics. But by the mid-18th century, it was almost universal. Anglicanization of names were a sign of this cultural shift. This rise in the use of English and English culture 
was seen to be a sign that the Welsh culture was in decline. The concept of the extinction of the Welsh language was perceived to be imminent. This thought process was definitely a feature of the 17th century. The author of the satirical volume Wallography said in 1682, hoping that, in quotes, if the stars prove lucky, there may be some glimmering hope that the British language may yet be Englished out of Wales. The belief was forming that the end of Welsh language and culture was close. The old ways were dying to an extent, of course, as bardic traditions and their noble patrons had started to dry up. The loss of this tradition was, of course, lamented by many as a sign that the language was under risk. But even as this perceived threat increased, there was new hope on the horizon. In 1695, the Printing Act, which had finally been allowed to lapse after almost 40 years of control, had previously meant that printing could only happen in London, Oxford, and Cambridge, and all printing presses were controlled from those three towns. This meant that mass printing in Wales and in Welsh had to be done in London. Needless to say that this meant a great deal of time-consuming minutiae was left in the hands of few people that could afford to oversee these prints as well as understand what they were printing. Now, there would no longer be a monopoly over the few controlling the way to print documents, and the flow of Welsh language could increase as the output of writing would be much more frequent. So the loss of traditions of the poets of the time would then flow into new traditions, one less dependent on the structures of the previous writings and construction Things like meter in poetry and all of that start to change around this point. The first to really bring printing to Wales was Thomas Jones. Jones had been a tailor in London in the 1670s because that had been his initial profession, but had come to see no benefit in the job at the capital. So instead, he turned to creating almanacs, becoming friends with well-known chroniclers in this field, and started to work with publishers to get his books published. Many, including Jones, saw this as a difficult, awkward, and annoying process. Yet, in 1679, Jones was granted a royal patent for compiling and publishing the annual Welsh Almanac. He would do so for the rest of his life. With the changes to the printing law, Jones moved his entire printing ideal and concept to Shrewsbury, English town, which was ironically the economic capital of mid-Wales, and continued his printing business from there. His almanacs usually consisted of a wide variety of topics, including astronomical and astrological guides for the 12 months of the year, lists of fairs and markets in Wales, as well as in the border areas, samples of Welsh poetry and literature, and a chronology of important historical events a guide to reading Welsh and keeping accounts, as well as a list of law terms and the names of Welsh bishops and miscellaneous advertisements. In other words, this was a cross-dynamic covering of various subject matter that would be important to the population. He was trying to fire imagination while informing people. Jones had a knack for staying ahead of the trends of the day and keeping up with his rivals. 
Some of his zeal meant that he created fast enemies and competition abounded in the space as there were many, many others who started this idea of almanacs, all of which would assist in protecting Welsh as a language because, of course, these documents had to be and were printed in Welsh. The concept of these almanacs, which would be aimed at poor farmers who relied on detailed weather forecasts for their livelihood and who could be a bit superstitious, who would, of course, believe in some of the astrology documents within the book. Jones published in Welsh, as I said, and as he was concerned at the plight of the language and literature, he gave amateur poets the opportunity to have their work printed for the first time. So in effect, not only did he offer a way for poets to publish work, of course, free or very, very inexpensively, but also it gave them more than just the patrons to reach out to in a world which was increasing in arts and entertainment. You think of Shakespeare, who was massive about a hundred years prior to this, is most of his money was not necessarily made from the patrons that he supplied stories and plays of. It was also made by the fact that he appealed to the the lower classes who came to the Globe Theater to watch these productions. They were largely the patrons who paid, even if they didn't pay on the same scale as a single patron could. Certainly by the numbers, they could out last and outfund a project, something that would be very important. So having this linkage allowed Jones to create connections with a largely singular language population in most of Wales, which still spoke Welsh as their main language, and it would help them to be informed on things of the day. Jones was fairly well-versed in politics as well as being very much uh, driven by his own opinions on things, which meant that he was pushing a, a pretty solid anti-French agenda in most of these. So there were things that he was doing which were kind of key to the whole process of spreading not only the language, but also the ideas that he was pushing forward. This also, of course, slowly but surely pushed the stuffy, restricted writings of the past full of form and formality and replaced them with new voices with less links to the old style. Wales remained a largely Welsh-only place, and away from the east, there was a large proportion of the population that, of course, only spoke Welsh. And having these new writers that came up with these new concepts and new storytelling and new songs all created a popularity of the Welsh language and assisted in keeping it vital and growing in a period where a lot of the Celtic languages in Britain were starting to, if not die out, stagnate. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. 
Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. As the 1720s came, printing presses arose in places like Carmarthen, making it an important focal point in Wales for publishing a print. The market town of 3000 was a key hub for the rest of the country, allowing for printed material to finally flow into Wales from their own local presses. Popular writing was joined by increases in popular songs, which were, of course, being written at this time, and carried forward older traditions and stories. Along with this came bigger projects, histories, biographies, fiction, and more and more collections of stories, which were growing in popularity and publishing. Welsh, rather than going into stagnation and isolation, was starting to thrive as the popular vernacular saw a rebirth during this period. Along with this renewal of Welsh writing came the revival of something that would be very familiar to most Welsh people today, which is the Eisteddfod. The use of the word Eisteddfod dates from 1523, but the poetic and musical contest held by Rhys Ap Griffith in Cardigan in 1176 is generally held to be the first recorded Eisteddfod. Others were held in Carmarthen about 1451 and in Cadwys in Flintshire about 1523 and 1567. Thomas Jones's Almanac advertised the Eistet from 1700 onwards, and by the 1730s they had become fairly numerous, and particularly in the northern parts of Wales. These cultural contests presented a version of popular Welsh culture that continues to this day, of course. In them, poets tested their skills and the victor of these contests were then chaired and then toasted by the population. During this period, these events were often drunken and raucous affairs that would change into much more formal and cultural events as the century rolled along. 
by the end of the 18th century, we would get what we would perceive as being the normal event. It, with it, a central part of Welsh cultural life came into existence. Far from seeing the languages dying, new writers tried to tell the story of a language that was very ancient, and they would, during this point, link it to various biblical stories, telling the tale of Welsh beginning even before the days of Babel, that the language was as old as Hebrew, all of these type of things would intermix into the arguments and the discussions that would carry on during this time period. Or they would pick up threads from good old Geoffrey Monmouth and continue the myth of Welsh as a language and a people who migrated from Troy, like their Roman conquerors, to lend weight to the history of these people in a European context. Belief in ancient and lofty origins of the Welsh and their language served to swell national pride. Suddenly, far from being rustic, it was now on the level of many other cultures in the noble ancient past. This pride found expression in the book Dreith Aprith Oiso, known in English as the Mirror of Past Ages. It was written in 1716 by Theophilus Evans, a vicar from Llanmarch in Breconshire. He presented Welsh history as a glorious epic creating a central point of pride built on shaky foundations, of course. He treated evidence quite uncritically and was totally unconcerned to distinguish between myth and history, something that would be common in this period of, in quotes, historical writings. Yet, in saying that, it was a popular book, and at least 20 editions were published by the time we reached 1900. This is not to say that there was no actual scholars out there looking into the origins of Wales or the language in a period that was famously a dynamic one for education and understanding and academic study. Edward Lloyd, for example, in 1697, set out on a four-year journey throughout various Celtic countries. He collected a vast amount of material, and through his analysis of it, became the founder of comparative Celtic philology. Philology is the study of language in oral and written historical sources. It is the intersection of textual criticism, literary criticism, history, and linguistics. It would be important when studying Welsh and other Celtic languages, as it would set the foundation for a modern understanding of the origins of British and Irish homegrown languages. The fact that Lloyd was so scholarly in his studies meant that he poked a few holes in the myths that had been made, obviously in a Welsh circles. Lloyd's research began because he was contracted by a group of scholars led by John Quigan of Mousehole who sought to preserve and further the Cornish language. The drive to preserve Cornish helped to drive his research on the whole of Celtic languages. Lloyd contributed to the development and preservation by a paper published in 1702 helping to reform Cornish, but in so doing, this version differs from the medieval language in having considerably simpler structures and grammar. In 1707, having been assisted in his research by fellow Welsh scholar Moses Williams, Lloyd published 
the first volume of the Archaeological Britannica, an account of the languages, histories, and customs of Great Britain, from traveling through Wales, Cornwall, and Basbratneg, or Brittany, Ireland, and Scotland, some of these ideas about commonly attributed linguistics had their roots from this period of time and in the early Enlightenment became critical to how perceptions were made about how language was formed. It would be Lloyd who noted a similarity between the two linguistic families, Brythonic or P-Celtic, that includes Breton, Cornish, and Welsh, or Godolic or Q-Celtic, which includes Irish, Manx, and Scottish Gaelic. He argued that the Brythonic originated from Gaul and that the Godolaric in the Iberian Peninsula, something which I think scholars today still debate the origins of these languages. As the century of the Enlightenment grew into a full swing, campaigns such as those by Rector Griffith Jones of Vandodor in Carmarthenshire brought further literacy to Wales. In 1731, Jones began establishing schools with the aim of teaching both children and adults to read the Bible and to learn the catechism of the Anglican Church. This would and could be seen as a continuation of the work of the Puritans, but these schools were focused on Welsh, not English. The schools were held mainly in the winter, when demands on agricultural work was, of course, fairly low due to the temperature, when had grasped the essentials of reading and had learned the various items that they were needed to understand religion within their parish, then these schools would move along. These schools were cheap, flexible, and efficient. They taught in Welsh, as I mentioned, and used Welsh publications to spread linguistic learning. To facilitate learning, over 70,000 Bibles were provided, and wealthy religious patrons provided the teachers' salaries. This was necessary as higher levels of the church provided no financial support for the program. Between 1731 and his death in 1761, Griffith Jones established a total of 3,325 schools in nearly 1,600 different locations. They were attended by perhaps as many as 250,000 pupils, Assuming that the local population of Wales in the mid-18th century was around 480,000, this was a remarkable achievement and was one of the most successful initiatives of its kind in Europe. The gaining of literacy and the ability to read would then, of course, increase the demand to read more. And even if, say, one or two people within your household could read, that meant that they could read to everyone else in the household, something that would give everyone an opportunity to understand and learn in the language that they had chosen to learn in, which of course the majority of the population would have been in Welsh. Obviously, Welsh literacy gave the language new prestige, no longer the language of the illiterate country bumpkin, so to speak. So of course, this enormously stimulated publications in the language, a sudden demand for reading materials meant that over 2,500 books in Welsh were published in the 18th century, a massive amount for a language that was, in quotes, at its end. As Professor Janet Davies put it, in quotes, 
in the period between the translation of the Bible into Welsh and the Industrial Revolution, the circulating schools, which is what these were called, were undoubtedly the most crucial happening in the history of the Welsh language and critical to its survival, I would hazard to say as well from my own perspective, because without this, without the language getting into a more stable written format, one that was being used by the majority of the population, you would see a continual decline in the use of the language, even faster than what we saw happening in the 1800s and even faster in the early 1900s. All of these things combined helped to keep the language afloat until it could be an academic language that would then be managed and supported by both government administration and the larger academic community, which would be key to its survival into the history of today. Thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank you all once again for coming along on this journey. I hope you are having a great week. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all for listening. Have yourselves a great day. Take care. Bye bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.